everybody. Um, I'm Stephanie Bruno. I am one of the co-chairs of the uh, State Planning Committee for Trust in States, the BBA. Um, and this is our year-end review. I think we have over 100 people attending today. So thank you all for dialing in. Um, we have a really great set of speakers. Um, and to that end, we have Brad Vizina from McLean Middleton, Josh Caswell from Howland Evangelista. They'll be doing new developments. Um, on the tax update side, we have Kirsten Johnson from Hemingway and Barnes and Patty Weisgerber from Cushing and Dolan. And on public policy, we have Heidi Seeley. Um, I just want to say thank you again to our speakers and to the committees. Um, as I think you'll see as you go through your materials, a lot of time and effort was put into putting all this together and it couldn't be done um, without today's speakers and the, the committees that they work with. So a big, big thank you to everybody. Um, and with that, we'll, we'll get started. As, as far as questions go, um, as Dan had mentioned, we're gonna try and let each speaker get through um, all of their cases, all of the points they wanna talk about. And before we switch over to a new speaker, we'll go through the questions. If your question isn't um, presented to the speakers, I'm sure you can follow up with them um, individually afterwards. They're all wonderful, lovely people and really happy to hear from you. Uh, and so with that, I give it to Josh and Brad. All right, good morning, everyone. This is Josh Caswell from Holland Evangelista Kohlenberg. Uh, Brad Vizina and I will be speaking about uh, some cases that came out in the last six months or so. Um, unfortunately, because of the, the pandemic, things are a bit slower. So the, the number of cases that we have to review is uh, a, bit, a bit fewer than normal. Um, but to sort of supplement the cases that were issued, Brad is going to provide uh, sort of coming attractions um, for cases that we're monitoring and, and looking forward to decisions on in the future. Um, but I'm going to start with a case called GGNSC Administrative Services, LLC, versus Jacqueline Schrader. Um, the facts of that case are that Jacqueline Schrader brought her mother to a nursing home facility owned by GGNSC. Um, when Jacqueline brought her mother to the facility, an administrator, hand her, an administrator handed her a stack of paperwork, um, which included an arbitration agreement. Um, the arbitration agreement is... Uh, sort of central to this case, but the, the facility didn't condition Emma's admission into the facility um, or her care on the completion of any of the documents. And the arbitration agreement was clearly labeled as a voluntary document. So Emma's admission was not uh, sort of contingent on signing that document. Following uh, Emma's admission into the facility, Jacqueline signed all of the documents provided by the administrator, including the arbitration agreement. Um, she signed them not individually, but as Emma's agent under a durable power of attorney. Um, the arbitration agreement was between the facility and the quote resident, which the agreement defined to include all persons whose claims is or may be derived through or on behalf of the resident, including any next of kin, executor, administrator, or heir of the resident and any person who has executed this agreement on the resident's behalf. Um, so it's important to note that Jacqueline uh, is Emma's only next of kin and was also subsequently became her personal representative when Emma passed away. Um, and she did, she, Emma passed away on December 3rd, 2013. 
um, and she did so in the care of the facility. On February 4th, uh, Jacqueline brought a wrongful death action in Superior Court in her capacity as Emma's personal representative. Um, on March 15th of 2016, GGNSC sued Jacqueline in Superior Court to compel arbitration. Um, Jacqueline's arguments against arbitration were twofold. One was that the agreement itself was unconscion uh, unconscionable, um, and the other was that the agreement could not bind the beneficiaries of Emma's estate because they um, weren't parties to the agreement and a wrongful death action is independent of um, the decedent's estate. The federal district court found for GGNSC and Jacqueline appealed the decision to the first district, um, which certified two questions to the SJC. The first question was, is the wrongful death claim of the decedent's heirs derivative or independent of the decedent's own cause of action? And the second question was, is the decedent's wrongful death claim subject to the agreement? Um, if the claims are derivative, beneficiaries of, of an estate can only bring a claim if the decedent would still be able to bring that claim themselves. Um, so if the, if the decedent did something like sign an arbitration agreement, the beneficiaries would be bound by that agreement. If the claim is independent, then the beneficiaries would not be bound by the, the arbitration agreement. Um, so the, the SJC found essentially that the wrongful death claims are derivative actions. And they found that the, the reasons supporting their decision were that the plain language of the statute supports um, the notion that the action is derivative. Um, the legislative intent seems to indicate that the, the wrongful death claims are intended to be derivative. Um, the statute provides that only personal representatives can bring a claim. It doesn't even mention beneficiaries of an estate having a separate cause of action. Um, and another sort of the final reason the SJC offered for finding that claims are derivative is that most states with similar statutes um, have had cases that have found wrongful death actions to be derivative in nature. Um, so the, the wrongful death action is derivative and uh, Jacqueline was bound um, to go through arbitration. As to the enforceability of the agreement, um, Jacqueline's argument was that the contract should be set aside because the beneficiaries themselves never consented to and weren't parties to the contract. Um, but the court held that the agreement was enforceable um, because a wrongful death action belongs to a decedent and does not belong to the beneficiary. So whether or not they were involved has no bearing on whether or not the, the agreement is enforceable. Um, and I think the, the big takeaway from this case is that if you have clients who are moving to assisted living or nursing facilities themselves or, or moving a parent, um, carefully review all the documents that they're being asked to sign. Um, some of them might be voluntary and, and they may not want to sign some of them. Um, the next case is uh, it's Edgartown Federated Church versus the Society for the Preservation of New England Antiquities, Inc., which I believe goes by Historic New England. At least that's what I'm going to call them. Um, Sarah Joy Mayhew died on March 12th, 1956, leaving a will that provided... Um, I hereby devise, give, devise, and bequeath the family homestead property in which I now live and all the land on which it stands 
to the congressional church in Edgartown so long as the property is used as a parsonage for the minister of said church or the federated church, or so long as said property is used for, for church purposes, rental being one of such purposes. But if said property is not so used as a parsonage or for church purposes, I give, devise, and bequeath the said homestead property to the Society for the Preservation of New England Antiquities, Inc. Um, the will also created a trust for the, uh, for the remainder of the decedent's property. Um, the trust was to pay for the maintenance of the real estate as long as it was used for church purposes, um, with income at, uh, additional income being paid to the church itself. Um, if the property was ever not used for church purposes, then the remainder of the decedent's estate was to be given outright to historic New England. Um, the parties stipulated that since 1956, the property had always been used for church purposes. Um, and so that was not at issue. In 1988, the church petitioned the probate and family court for a declaration that the church was entitled to all of the net income of the decedent's trust um, without regard for the maintenance expenses. Um, the church argued, one, that historic New England's uh, remainder interest had violated the rule against perpetuities and was no longer enforceable. Um, and two, that um, since they were sort of managing the property, it, it didn't really make a difference anyway. Um, a judge of the probate and family court found that the trustee's administrative burden and expenses would be eliminated if all trust income were simply paid directly to the church. And so there was a probate court order essentially um, modifying the terms of the trust so that all income went to the church. Uh, the, the court in that case, however, did not address whether historic New England's um, remainder interest had violated the rule against perpetuities. Um, in the present action, the church is now seeking uh, to sell the property and was looking for the following declarations from the probate court. Um, one, that the church owns the real estate in fee simple absolute. Two, that historic New England has no right to impose preservation restrictions on the real estate. Uh, because because of that rule against perpetuities issue and three that the church is authorized to sell the homestead property and devote the funds from the sale to church purposes as defined in the will um, the superior court ruled in the church's favor um, and just uh, on the on the first issue saying that it owned the property in fee simple absolute and did not deal with the remaining issues historic new england then appealed that decision um, the appeals court noted that when the decedent executed the will, um, the applicable statutory rule against perpetuities was that um, if a fee simple subject to a right of entry or a fee simple determinable um, became, uh, if, if, the, if the reversionary interest didn't uh, trigger within 30 years of the creation of the interest, um, then that violated the rule against perpetuities. Um, there was an exception carved out of the initial statute that said that 30-year window doesn't apply if charities are, if both parties, the, the current beneficiary and the remainder beneficiary, are both charities. Um, there was a revision to the rule in, I think it was the 60s, where the, the legislature essentially eliminated that 30-year window. Um, or, I'm sorry, eliminated, eliminated the exception to the 30-year window. So that now applies to charities as well. Um, and to avoid uh, constitutional issues, the legislature allowed 
um, any effective charitable organization to preserve its contingent interest by filing a document in the land evidence records before 1964. Um, unfortunately for historic New England, they did not file anything in the land evidence records. Um, so that 30 year window, the, 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 the rule against perpetuities applies to the 1956 will. Um, and so the court found accordingly that um, historic New England's interest in the property became unenforceable on March 12th. Um, 1986, which was 30 years after the decedent's death, and uh, and found for the church. And with that, I think I'll turn it over to Brad. All right, thanks, Josh. So I'm going to pick things up with a discussion on Botello versus Botello, and then I'm going to review a couple of cases currently before the SJC um, that present some novel legal issues as well as some public policy issues. So. Um, I'll conclude with those. So Patello versus Patello is an appeals court case and it's a classic will contest. You know, it's, a, it's a, essentially a law school exam question. And so here the facts are that Paul, Paul died survived by his wife, which is his second wife and children from a previous marriage. And he executed a 1999 will that left all of his estate to his four children. And they submitted this will for allowance with the probate court and the wife arrives on scene with an objection and a new will, a 2011 will that essentially gives all the tangible personal property to the wife and all the rest pours over into a revocable trust. And so not surprisingly, the children objected to this and, and you know, on three grounds, one, undue influence, um, two, lack of testamentary capacity. So they're arguing that their father didn't have capacity to sign this 2011 will. And the third ground is fraud. And so at the trial court level, um, the, the wife sought to dismiss the 1999 will and she did prevail. And so this was on a summary judgment hearing. And so the probate court allowed the, the newer 2011 will. And so the children appealed. And so with respect to the testamentary capacity argument, you know, the standard, you know, the standard that's applied is at the time of executing the will, you know, the testator must be free from delusion and understand the purpose of the will, you know, and the nature of the property subject to the will and the persons who could claim the property. And so that's the typical standard that you would apply to determine whether a, you know, a testator has capacity to sign a will. And the key point really is, is that, uh, you know, a, a testator has to have capacity at the time of executing the will. A testator may not have capacity before that or after it. The key timeline is really that the testator has to have capacity when the documents sign. And so the court, the appeals court noted that, you know, the children didn't prevent, pre present any evidence that would suggest uh, that Paul had no capacity, that he lacked capacity at the time of, of signing that 2011 will. Um, and, and moreover, the, the wife was able to present evidence um, to suggest that he did have capacity. Paul had capacity before signing the will and after. And the attorney for Paul testified that at the time of signing, you know, Paul had capacity. And, and so with those findings, the court you know, dismissed the testamentary capacity claim and, and just simply found that there was no evidence to you know, arrive at that conclusion. Paul had capacity you know, when signing the 2011 will. Uh, the next claim, you know, the ground was undue influence. And, and so undue influence, you, you have to, a, a threshold is you have to show that there was an unnatural disposition under the terms of the document and, and that, you know, the person who executed the will was susceptible to undue influence by a person that could 
stood to take advantage of the unnatural disposition. Um, and then you have to prove that, you know, there was actually undue influence exercise. And, and so th with respect to an unnatural disposition under the terms of the 2011 will, the court pointed out simply that, you know, the children were the beneficiaries of a $2 million life insurance policy. So the estate plan was designed where the children would receive that payout and the wife would receive the proceeds under the revocable trust as part of the pour over mechanism in the will. And so the court didn't find that there was an unnatural disposition. And moreover, in terms of, you know, whether Paul was susceptible to undue influence at the time of signing the will, the court pointed out that Paul, you know, in all conversations with his attorney, well, most of them, as they said, um, his wife wasn't present during these meetings. So a lot of the discussions were private with the attorney. Uh, so, you know, the wife couldn't sit there and slowly nudge him in the right direction or, you know, to what's most advantageous to her. Um, and, and so the court simply didn't find that there was any undue influence and, and dismissed this claim as well. And the final claim, fraud, the court simply found that, you know, on the record, there was no evidence to suggest fraud. Um, so this was dismissed. So ultimately, you know, the summary judgment ruling in favor of the 2011 will at the trial court level, that was affirmed. Um, and, and so again, so that's kind of a textbook um, will contest. And usually they, they frequently come up in second marriage situations where you have children born of a previous marriage. And so now I'm going to turn to the Supreme Judicial Court cases. And I'm going to start with the Harry D. Prince case and in your materials there, there's a citation on page 12 to this case and this this case was actually argued before the SJC on March 5th and, and it's actually a really interesting one so the legal issue presented is does an irrevocable self-settled trust you know with a spendthrift provision that's governed by Massachusetts law and that allows unlimited distributions of principal and income to the settlor you know is a creditor able to attach assets at you know in such trusts when the settler dies. So in other words, you know, the real question is, you know, what impact does a settler's death have with respect to an irrevocable spendthrift trust, you know, when creditors try to attach assets after death? And, you know, if you read the briefings of this case, the answer is there's no answer right now under current law. It's a gap actually in common law and statutory law. And so unfortunately, we're in a position now where bad facts make bad cases. And the facts of this case are terribly sad as they are sorted. And so here it starts with two neighbors who are in a, a long protracted dispute, a property dispute. You know, at the time they're living in Arizona and Donald and his wife, Ellen, they lose the lawsuit. And shortly thereafter, Donald's wife kills herself. And shortly after that, Donald reaches out to his attorney, creates an irrevocable trust of which he's the sole beneficiary during his lifetime. He, he appoints his attorney as the sole trustee and the trustee is allowed to make distributions of income and principal to Donald. And at Donald's death, the remainder interest passes to Donald's daughter. And so, you know, this all occurred in October of 2008. And so the trust was funded in November of 2008 with the lion's share of Donald's assets. And so about four, four or five months later, Donald goes back to Arizona, finds his neighbors in the Walmart parking lot, local Walmart parking lot, and kills both of them. And then a day after, he kills himself. And so, you know, what ensued afterwards was a wrongful death action. And, you know, 
it was decided that you know there was no assets of the estate and there was a, about a $750,000 judgment in, in favor of Harry DePrince, and that's the son of the neighbors who were killed. And, you know, and the problem was, is that no asset of the estate. So all parties in the Arizona court proceeding agreed that the satisfaction of the judgment, the wrongful death action, would be satisfied through the trust assets. And they agreed that they would move jurisdiction to Massachusetts and, you know, a reach and apply action would be proceeded there. And, you know, the parties didn't agree that this reach and apply action would succeed. In fact, the trustee, you know, um, fought the, you know, the reach and apply action. So when, when it arrived at the district court in Massachusetts, the district court ultimately um, found in favor of the DePrins family and, and awarded the reach and apply. And the trustee then appealed and the SJ and, and then at the appeals level, the appeals court certified the question to the SJC. And again, you know, that question of whether, you know, an irrevocable self-settled spendthrift trust, you know, that's governed by Massachusetts law and the settler is the beneficiary during his lifetime, you know, whether the reach and apply action could be satisfied with trust assets, even though the settler is dead. And so, you know, you have two interesting arguments. The estate is you know, the estate or trust is arguing that you know, under Massachusetts law, it's fairly clear that if, it's a, if it was a revocable trust, you know, the creditors could uh, attach assets to the extent, you know, the assets were distributable to the settlor during the settlor's lifetime. So in other words, a revocable trust, the entire trust is fair gained. You know, it's exposed to creditors. With respect to an irrevocable trust during the settlor's lifetime, the creditors can attach assets to the extent, you know, such assets are distributable to the set lower. And, and this is codified in the Uniform Trust Code under Section 505. And, and there's also common law, Ware, Ware versus Goulda, um, you know, that you know, codifies these principles and reaffirms them. But what's not addressed by either the common law or the statutory authority is, you know, what happens with an irrevocable trust when the settler dies? And so the estate takes the position that at the settler's death, so when Donald died, um, he had no longer an interest in this trust. The remainder interest, you know, vested immediately to the daughter. And, and so it would be, it, you know, the equities would stack up in favor of the daughter. Why are we going to divest her of her share of the trust? She did nothing wrong. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, Donald didn't have any control over the trust while he was alive. And so, you know, those are the arguments on the side of the, the, the trust. And you have to think about it from a trustee's perspective too. You know, you want finality in terms of the administration of a trust. So, you know, Donald killed himself in about 2009 and it wasn't until about eight years later or so that a, a, a judgment, a creditor judgment was found. And so there was no debt against the estate you know, or the trust. And so, you know, there's a concern that if um, creditors can reach and apply assets of an irrevocable trust after the settler's death in this situation, then that would leave, um, you know, trust exposed. And how do you fully administer a trust if there's going to be a, a creditor lurking out there and there's no real deadline or statute of limitations? And so, you know, that's a concern, you know, but on the flip side for the DePrins, you know, Massachusetts doesn't, doesn't have a, an asset protection statute. You know, and so, you know, for a public policy point of view, you know, if I decide to set up an irrevocable trust of which I'm the beneficiary and I leave the balance to my wife or kids, you know, 
and I intend to hurt people or, you know, go after, you know, people that I don't like or commit crimes or, or rack up debts, you know, and, and then I kill myself, you know, should I be able to get away with that? You know, why is it that a revocable trust, you know, can be, you know, essentially pierced and, and, and creditors can satisfy uh, judgments with the revocable trust and not an irrevocable trust. So, you know, there, there's interesting policy debates on both sides. And, and so, you know, we'll stay tuned and see what happens. Um, and again, so this was argued before the SJC on March 5th. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see where this one goes. Um, and, and again, there's a concern with bad facts make, make uh, bad cases or bad law. So um, that, that is a concern. And the justices on the SJC did point that out, that you know, the equities are, it's a tough one to swallow. Um, so the final SJC case, um, the estate of Jacqueline Ann Kendall versus the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. And, and, and so this is a case that was actually taken up by the SJC itself, given the public policy matters involved. And it really, it, it's an attempt to reconcile the provisions of the Massachusetts Probate Code and a chapter um, 118E dealing with mass health payments. And so the facts are is that Jacqueline died in 2014 and she was survived by three children and she owned a property with her brother as tenants in common. And, you know, in the wake of her death, the property was never sold. It was, in fact, it was continued to be rented by the brother, you know, for a period of about four years. And in 2018, the brother wanted to sell the property. And so the problem there is, is it's still an estate asset. So there needs to be a probate appointment process to, you know, convey clear title. Um, with, with respect to Jacqueline's estate. And, and so what happened is, is the estate filed a, a, a late and limited formal testacy proceeding. And, and again, these proceedings are very limited. You know, it essentially, it limits the personal representative to um, you know, confirming title and the beneficiaries, and, and you're not allowed to pay any creditors other than just routine expenses of the estate. And, and, and so the mass health, you know, got wind of the filing and submitted a claim indicating that there's over a hundred thousand um, dollar claim against the estate, you know, by reason of benefits that Jacqueline received while she was alive. And, and so all parties, they proposed, they agreed with the sale, the sale went through, but the sale proceeds were held in escrow and, and until, you know, the, the parties could address the issue of, you know, can the personal representative actually pay mass health? So, so in Massachusetts, there's a, a few creditor deadlines um, with respect to pay, payment of estate creditors. And, and so the, the, the biggest one is, is Article 3, Section 803, and, and that imposes a one-year creditor deadlines. And so in other words, a creditor has up to a year from a date of death of the decedent to submit um, credit, creditor claims. And, and after that, the creditors are barred from collecting you know, on any claims. And so the purpose of this is really to build in finality and efficiency in the state administrations. You know, again, you don't want creditors lurking out there five years later, bringing claims against beneficiaries. You know, the personal representative wants to button up things fairly quickly. And this is, and the statute's designed to do that. You know, it gives creditors a year to come forward and, and you know, get a pound of their, you know, get a pound of the flesh. And, and so, you know, in addition to that, so you have, Article 3, Section 803, and then you also have Article 3, Section 108, which is the late and limited um, testacy proceeding. And there, the language provides that, you know, if a personal representative is appointed to this type of proceeding, 
the personal representatives can only confirm legal title to the beneficiaries, and it specifically says the personal representative is not allowed to pay creditor claims. And so you have these two, two statutes, and then when you look at Chapter 118, Section E, 118 E, Section 32, this statute seems to suggest that with respect to mass health claims, mass health can file a claim after a year. And, and so, you know, it, in fact, it says one year after date of death or four months after the bond is approved of the personal representative. So, you know, there, you know, that seems like mass health could file a claim at any time. And, and, and so, you know, you're looking at it and you're trying to reconcile how does 3 108 and 3- um, 803, just with, you know, 118E. And, you know, so, so that's, that's the issue of this case. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but it should be interesting. You know, again, you, you have two, you know, a few competing statutes. And, and so, you know, MassHealth, you know, the argument against MassHealth is MassHealth had notice of the death, you have to give the DMA notice of, of uh, Jacqueline's death when she passed away, so they could have filed a claim. Um, but again, so I mean, again, it, the, uh, the equities stack up uh, on both sides. You know, you want finality in state administrations. At the same time, you don't want people, you know, circumventing, you know, their debts, you know, to the state. And, and so, and this is precisely why the SJC actually took up the case. You know, they knew there was a lot of um, policy issues here. And, and so rather than just having it decided at the appeals court level, SJC decided to take it. So ideally, the, the Prince case and, you know, this Jacqueline and Kendall estate case, um, they'll be decided within the next six months. And um, we'll be able to present on it, you know, in the next um, maybe webinar or maybe in person, hopefully in person. <laughs> um, and that's it. And so I'll hand it off to the next committee. Um, hi, uh, so this is Patty Weisgerber. Um, Kirsa Johnson and I are going to be presenting from the, um, the tax law updates committee. And um, I understand that not everybody has the handouts yet, but when you do get them, you'll see that um, there are about 22 cases that um, our uh, committee wrote up um, summaries for. There are also a number of different um, um, uh, pieces of administrative guidance and PLRs and a number of different things. So it's very broad um, in terms of what has come through since like uh, December to about April, early May. Um, so Kirsten and I are just going to touch on a few different um, cases that we found interesting. And I'm going to start it off, um, go through a few things I, I thought are interesting, and then Kirsten's going to jump in after me and share what um, cases she found interesting. So the, the first one that I wanted to bring up was the uh, Schwartzbaum case. And this is one of those FBAR cases, and it, it, it doesn't necessarily fit into trust and estates, except for when you have foreign accounts um, in the estate of the decedent and, and all. So this is all stuff that needs to be kind of considered as part of the planning um, and whether or not there's exposure. So this is interesting for a couple of different reasons. You, you have this um, uh, gentleman who was a German citizen, came here to the United States, became naturalized. Um, his father had been very successful 
and had had a, um, a business where um, I think he wound up with 60 or 70 million dollars and a lot of the um, a lot of the father's estate um, was in different Swiss bank accounts so the son comes here to the United States he um, uh, he comes here, I think 2006 is the first year he has to file an income tax return, goes to a CPA, uh, communicates the fact that he gets gifts and all from his dad, um, and they report that kind of information correctly, I believe, but there's a communication issue in terms of what actually has to be reported um, uh, you know, on the income tax returns, and I think the CPA misunderstood the requirements for filing an FBAR, um, told him something about not having to file things because it wasn't U.S. connected and and all. But he still had um, he still had overseas accounts himself, not just his dad's. So the IRS got a hold of this, and the tax years involved um, run from 2006 through 2009. And if you're familiar with any of these cases, this was a big time frame for the IRS to be going after um, different individuals. And initially the penalties that were going to be involved um, for this, it was gonna be around $35 million. And in 2015, um, if there was a, um, an internal revenue memorandum that came out that gave the examiners the ability to mitigate the willful penalties amounts um, using different standards, and so the uh, the amount of the, the penalties that came to the, the court to the case were about thirteen million dollars, and it gets break, broken down by the different years. And um, what what's interesting, the reason why I wanted to bring this up, isn't um, just because it's an FBAR case, but if you have dealt with these in the past, if you wind up having um, so in in prior years, you had this offshore voluntary disclosure program that you could try to file to get your penalties um, uh, reduced or, um, uh, or, or to make sure that you avoided criminal prosecution with this, because that, that's another element of this. And um, that's no longer around, but there's still the streamlined voluntary disclosure that you can do. And at that time, he had filed for the offshore voluntary disclosure there were about $35 million in penalties. Then he withdrew from this. We're down to um, the 13. And the penalties for all of the years that the, um, the IRS was imposing were based on willfulness, that, that he willfully um, did not file the FBAR. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is what we look and see what the, the court did for 2006. So if you've, if you've been involved in any of these, there's this constructive knowledge theory that's usually applied. And you can be considered to have um, uh, not filed your FBARs willfully just because you signed off on an income tax return under penalties of perjury, especially when there's a Schedule B that at the bottom of the form um, asks you the question, did you have a foreign account for this year? Did you file an FBAR? And if you file the return, that, that has been used as an example of um, constructive knowledge um, that then can have the, um, uh, the willful penalties applied. And what happens in this case 
is this case for 2006, because in that year, he didn't really understand what he was doing. He, it was the first year he went to the CPA. He did communicate information that he thought was helpful. He didn't really get the right information back from the CPA. And the court agrees with this recent case from 2018 called the Flume case, F-L-U-M-E. And if you get the Schwartzbaum case in the, in the um, when you, if you wanna look into this further, you know, you go to page 10, and what the court is saying here is that imputing constructive knowledge of filing requirements to a taxpayer simply by virtue of having signed a tax return would render the distinction between non-wilful and willful violation in the FBAR um, context meaningless. And this is really different from the McBride and the Williams cases where the um, where willful penalties were being applied. So I wanted to bring this up because I think you're seeing a shift possibly with the courts. This might be a case, the Flume case and the Schwartzbaum cases might be cases that if you're doing a streamlined um, voluntary disclosure um, might be something that you might wanna cite. Um, and then I also wanted to bring this up because there have been, um, there was a, a um, penalties that were calculated, the 13 million that the IRS came up with, not only we we, we taking 2006 and not considering it a, a willful penalty, which I forgot to mention, a willful penalty is in an FBAR um, situation, it's the greater of $100,000 or 50% of the value of the foreign bank account. So this can really get really big, really fast if you have a high net worth client. So there's that, they, they had miscalculated the um, penalties basing them on the aggregate maximums under the OVDI, the Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program, instead of on the June 30th, um, just balances in the accounts. And the June 30th was the prior filing date. I also wanted to bring this up because the filing date for FBARs changed a few years back. Um, it's April 15th, it's the 1040 deadline now. It's not a separate deadline for the, for the FBARs. So um, I wanted to bring that up. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up that was um, a foreign-based kind of estate planning um, issue is um, was the, um, the issuance of RevProc 2020-17. So anybody that's ever had um, a client who has worked abroad for a number of years, they might have a foreign pension plan, a foreign retirement plan, or certain types of tax favored um, uh, foreign savings um, plans. And very honestly, historically, there's been some confusion in terms of how do you report these? Are you reporting them on 3520 as foreign trusts? Do you still have to report them on FBARs in the form 8938, which is another form for reporting um, certain specified assets of foreign, um, you know, of uh, foreign assets kind of a thing. And um, what's helpful with this is we now have this RevProc to go to, and um, it's clarifying, it's defining finally what is a um, what is a tax um, uh, favored retirement type of plan in this RevProc. It also um, defines what a um, let me find the where's my notes. I'm sorry about that. Let me. I was so organized and now I'm not. Um, so it's um, it's defining what, what a tax favored foreign retirement trust is. 
It's um, defining what a tax-favored foreign non-retirement savings plan is. And, and that's where we didn't have good definitions before. And so if it is um, a tax-favored um, uh, foreign retirement trust under the RevProc, it's exempt now from having to report it, having to be reported on Form 3520, which 3520 is for reporting foreign trusts, distributions from those trusts, contributions into those trusts. And what's important here too is that the values um, uh, of those distributions and transfers into and the value of the trust, that's the basis for the penalties. And those penalties are steep. You have 35% penalties um, if you don't do the, the Form 35, uh, 3520 reporting, 35% penalties on the distributions, on the transfers in, and if you don't do the correct reporting on 3520, 3520A, you can have a 5% of the value of the foreign trust can be the penalty. So this is finally giving some structure and some clarity to what has to be reported, what isn't reported, and the other reason why I wanted to bring this up is that um, while you still have to, um, oh, 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 let me backtrack, you still have to report the, um, the foreign retirement plans, um, uh, pension plans as they apply on the FBAR and on the form 8938 if they meet the thresholds. But what's, what's good here, if you have a client that has previously been um, uh, hit, with these substantial penalties, they they have under this RevProc, they can now go back and request a refund or abatement um, using Form 80, 843. So that's part of the issuance of the RevProc that um, prior prior penalties applied, those taxpayers can go and um, request the the refund. Um, so so that's I, I wanted to bring that up. Um, I'm going to kind of go quickly. The other thing that I had on my plate were the different conservation easement cases, and there are six of them um, this time. And what I think I really wanted to identify here is you, you keep seeing changes with these conservation easement cases. Um, a number of years ago, what you'd normally see was the IRS challenging the, um, the conservation easement deduction um, on the basis of the valuation. Um, so when you have these conservation easements, what's happening is you've got a transfer of real property going to um, a qualified organization, which is usually a land trust or a government agency. And um, it has to be, the, the use of the easement is restricted for certain conservation um, objectives like protecting a vista, uh, maintaining the wildlife habitat, those kind of items. And, it, and you have these really broad and stringent regulations, um, uh, requirements, and filing requirements, because you're getting a deduction um, for a transfer of a partial interest in the property. You're not making a complete, you know, gift of the property. So you have to, um, what you have to do is you have to look to um, Treasureg 1.170A-14. Um, to make sure that you're in compliance with everything. And what you've seen over the years is initially the, um, the IRS would come at these in terms of what the valuation was and challenge that way. But that would wind up taking a lot of the IRS resources and they weren't always successful in, um, you know, in challenging the valuations. And sometimes the, the court cases would be remanded back for another look. 
Um, now what you're seeing is a shift to whether or not the, um, the perpetuity um, uh, requirements, was this transfer of the partial interest of a con you know, this conservation easement, was it transferred in perpetuity? Was it, was the, um, the grant in perpetuity and is it protected in perpetuity? And that's where you really need to go to um, section uh, 1.170A, 14G. And there's a whole bunch of different restrictions. There's, you have to be able to um, um, subordinate the mortgagee interest. You need to be able to substantiate with certain documents um, how the, um, uh, what, what the conservation easement, what the protected property is. Um, you need to substantiate this with um, different maps and surveys and they have to be, you know, time dated. Um, uh, you know, whether or not the, the property is going to be um, used in a certain way, that this restriction applies a certain way. So um, there's a lot, it's, it's too much to go into in detail today, but I think what's interesting is that the, the, um, the IRS is looking more at the deeds. So how is the deed structured? How are they trying to modify something? Are they really granting the, um, the, uh, the easement in perpetuity? Can it be defined as being in perpetuity? If something happened, the, the extinguishment clauses, if something happens to the property and unexpectedly it has to be sold, is the right formula being applied so that the proceeds can go to the, um, the qualified organization, the land trust or the government agency to then be used for those conservation purposes again? So, so there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, I'm up against the, the, the clock, but um, one of the things I wanted to, to make sure people knew is if you have one of these kind of situations come up, look to the IRS Conservation Audit Techniques Guide, sorry, excuse me, while you're working on this. And that'll give you good insights into what, what does the IRS look like so that when you go to submit the filing for the conservation easement deduction, you can make sure that you're thinking through all of these different items along with looking at the cases. Um, so with that, I'm looking at the time and Kirsa, can I pass this over to you now to, to talk about your cases? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I have a few also topics that I found interesting in the tax updates. The first is related to the CARES Act, which was passed in March of this year and related to the coronavirus, which is why we're all here in this current format. Um, the first topic of interest to this group probably relates to retirement benefit changes. So first of all, um, excuse me, <laughs> the, uh, the CARES Act waived the RMD requirement for 2020. So anyone who's in a position to forego taking their RMDs this year could choose to do so, could be a benefit to them. Um, also, it provides that there are no penalties for early withdrawals of up to $100,000 for coronavirus-related expenses. Those expenses include being infected by the virus or a loss in wages, those sorts of things related to the, the virus and the pandemic and the quarantine. Um, so there are no penalties for those early, early withdrawals. There will be they, those um, withdrawals are taxable income, and they can that tax can be spread out over three years. So there, there are details there if anyone is interested in that. 
the CARES Act also tried to incentivize charitable giving. Um, they did this by providing a $300 above the line deduction for charitable donations for individuals who do not itemize their income tax returns um, and also increased the deduction of up to 100% of just in gross income for individuals who do uh, um, itemize their income tax returns. It's important to note that, um, that these donations uh, are not applicable to donations to supporting organizations or donor advised funds and the donations must be made in cash. Um, there are other ways to, to use donor advised funds right now um, and to benefit from the current market with those. Um, moving on, the next topic I have is uh, final regulations issued for qualified opportunity zones. This happened in December of 2019 and they, uh, the regulations answered some questions, answered a number of questions um, of note one of the questions they answered was um, they clarified what is an inclusion event and they and what is not an inclusion event and what is not an inclusion event um, is a gift to a grant or trust a transition from a grant or trust to a non-grant or trust by virtue of the grantor's death um, the death of a qualified opportunity fund investment holder um, and transactions between a grantor trust and a non-grantor trust or sorry transactions between a grantor trust and the grantor of that trust. So um, creating a grantor trust, uh, exercise of swap powers, that sort of thing. It also um, re, not redefined, but kind of clarified also the 180 day period for making investments into qualified opportunity funds. Uh, it provided more flexibility for beneficiaries of estates and non-grantor trusts who might not know that they have these um, in, that they have these gains that they can invest in qualified opportunity funds until after the 180 day period has passed. Um, uh, it, finally, it confirmed that qualified opportunity fund investments do not get a step up in basis at the death of the owner because they're retreated as IRD. However, there are other um, ways in which the uh, those assets do get a step up in basis. They, um, you know, being held for five years, they get, you know, a small amount of basis step up or um, on the sale of the sale of the investment fund after, after um, it's, it's been held for 10 years. Um, okay, moving on. Um, in a series of PLRs issued in January, a trust, so this relates to um, a trust is allowed to make a late election for to deduct charitable distributions after the close of the tax year. So in this case, um, a trust was allowed to make a late election to deduct charitable distributions after the close of the tax year when the tax preparer had failed to file the 1041 in time. The um, trust had made charitable uh, made donations to a charitable organization in year two that they had intended to take on the tax return for year one. The tax advisor failed to file, timely file the return, um, thereby missing the window for claiming the deduction and also failing to make the 645 election. Uh, the trustees submitted evidence that this mistake, that this failure to file was inadvertent. The, the affidavits, notes, other communications, um, just a very well, you know, argued plea for relief and the commissioner granted an, a 120 day extension 
So the moral of that story is to make your argument well, if you're going to make an argument like this and, you know, back it up. Um, then we have uh, a few more PLRs issued in April relating to the termination of a Q-tip trust pursuant to a settlement agreement. So in this case, the decedent had established a revocable trust with a marital trust component and an irrevocable trust. Uh, Q-tip treatment was elected for both trusts under which the spouse was to receive all income and then discretionary, or not discretionary, uh, principal distributions on a limited to a standard. It's the spouse had a testamentary power of appointment and failing to exercise that would mean that the, any remaining trust property would be distributed to a charitable trust uh, established by the decedent. Um, prior to the decedent's death, he and the spouse were estranged. So at the decedent's death, the, um, the spouse challenged the estate plan and then they you know, engaged in settlement negotiations. Pursuant to the settlement, the spouse was to receive the value of her, her um, income interest as an outright distribution and then was to uh, distribute the remaining income interest and of the marital trust and of the irrevocable trust to the charitable trust. And the, the settlement was conditioned on a positive ruling from the IRS that, that her distribution of her remaining income interest to the charitable trust would constitute um, would constitute a charitable deduction, or would be would qualify for a charitable deduction, um, which it did, um, it, and that her action would not be considered self-dealing, which the IRS agreed that it was not. Um, and then finally, we have a case out of the Eighth Circuit, United States versus Mangato. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, uh, the executor of a very large estate comprised mostly of real estate didn't file an estate tax return. Um, a federal lien was placed on the property and when the government sought to enforce it uh, several years later, they named the executor both in his capacity as executor of the estate, trustee of the trust and his individual capacity. Uh, the court ordered the executor to obtain counsel for the trust and for the estate, uh, but he did not. Um, the court ordered default judgment against the estate and trust and granted summary judgment against the executor in his personal capacity. The executor appealed, but the Eighth Circuit upheld the decision, um, stating that because the executor was not an attorney, so this, sorry, the executor was not an attorney, the executor was just a person related to the decedent. Um, because they were a non-lawyer, they couldn't represent the estate or trust in the federal court. Um, and the executor also didn't show that he had any interest in the property uh, in his personal capacity, any interest at all. I believe he said that he, uh, when deposed, that he did not, he took the fifth one deposed as to whether he had any interest in the property. Um, and that, uh, so he did not show that he had any interest in the property, let alone any interest that was senior to a federal tax lien. So summary judgment was upheld. And this is kind of a make sure you have a good executor in place on your estate plan kind of case. And those are all the cases that I have. I think we are up against the clock here so that we can pass it off to the next, the next presenter. So this is Heidi Seeley. I'm not sure, Brad, were you going to 
take a question or should I just carry on? I think I'll carry on unless you jump in here. So uh, Heidi Seeley uh, of Rackman, Sawyer and Brewster, I'm the co-chair of the public policy uh, subcommittee. So I'm gonna walk you through a few uh, items of public policy that are a little interesting. I'm sure as most of you can understand, the legislature has been a little preoccupied uh, with COVID related uh, Legislation, legislative things. So a lot of the um, bills that we were following have kind of just fallen by the wayside. So when you get your uh, materials, you'll see that I have the chart that we kind of keep updated with all of the um, uh, legislature that uh, the Boston Bar Association is either supporting or that we're interested in uh, as it relates to trust and estates. So that chart will be part of your materials. Um, most of the bills that we are following um, have basically uh, completely been effectively killed for this session. So um, they will need to be refiled in the new session, which, which starts in January. So that includes the Rufata bill, um, decanting, the adopted children thing, kind of all of those big bills that we've been following for a long time. So they are out for this session. Um, there's a few highlights that I wanted to mention that actually are still alive and kicking. Um, nothing has been passed into law, but there's a few that I wanted to just highlight. So the tax basis bill um, has been, uh, that's uh, House Bill 2590, has been reported to the Ways and Means Committee um, and the Caregiver Affidavit Bill, House 3445. Um, has been reported to the Steering and Policy uh, Committee. So what that means is that the current session is supposed to end July 31st. Um, these bills are, have been reported favorably, so that means that they could potentially be extended, so they are not quite dead yet. So the, um, the caregiver affidavit one is one that the uh, Boston Bar Association is considering supporting. It's a pretty important one that a lot of other states have bills. Um, I know that we had a discussion amongst our group about it, uh, and it sounds like something that most people would be interested in. So hopefully we can get some movement on that one. Um, the special needs trust bills and the estate tax bills are also both still alive and in committee. Um, they have been extended through June uh, 16th. So those are bills that we are monitoring, but not advocating one way or the other on, but those two bills are ones that are still alive as well. So um, as always, we'll kind of keep you updated, but I don't have much more on the kind of bills that we're following. I did want to take some time just to discuss, hopefully what all of you guys are aware of, but just kind of highlight some of the legislation that has been passed in response to the coronavirus uh, pandemic that we're all facing. So uh, starting with the uh, probate courts, um, I'm sure all of you know, but just so that you're aware, the probate courts and all of the courts in Massachusetts have responded to the pandemic um, by closing to, by closing, quote unquote, um, they are open for emergency matters, and we are also finding that they're open and doing actually a pretty good job of handling non-emergency matters, um, such as filing probates. Uh, we've been pretty successful in just mailing probates in uh, and getting citations. Uh, so, you know, the wheels are turning. They're a little bit slow, but they are certainly turning. So, um, the probate court has issued a standing order. It was standing order 2-20. Just so everybody knows, that was recently amended um, on as of June 1st. So just a few kind of updates as to where where that standing order um, 
has been amended. Uh, not much has changed beyond saying that kind of what we're doing now, kind of these emergency only hearings in person and you know e-filing or email filing for everything else, that is going to be extended uh, through July 1st. Um, that's how the new standing order goes. So those emergency matters that can be heard um, include things like healthcare proxy issues, uh, motions on seeking a do not resuscitate order, petitions for appointment of a special personal representative, um, uh, and a lot to do kind of with child, child care type things in divorce situations. So those are the things that are being heard uh, you know, on an emergency basis by the court. Um, and I just wanted to highlight that, you know, like I said, everything is going through July 1st uh, for kind of the rest, the rest of the stuff. Um, the other issue that I just wanted to brief, briefly touch on um, is the remote notarization law that was passed by the legislature. Um, unfortunately and embarrassingly, we were one of the last states to do that, <laughs> but we did it and it's in, in the books. So chapter 71 of the Acts of 2020 allows remote notarization of estate planning documents and real estate documents. Um, there are lots of, you know, articles about it out there. Um, the materials include an article that I wrote about it that kind of gives a high-level overview of the whole thing. Um, and I know for a fact that REBA, the Real Estate Bar Association, has also recently uh, put out some sample notary clauses as well as a sample remote uh, notarization affidavit that's available, uh, I believe, on their website. And I've been told that those are pretty good ones. So if you have not had the opportunity to do one of these remote notarizations, um, I just wanted to pass along some kind of tips on that. <laughs> uh, obviously, kind of having a checklist involved in your process will make the whole thing go a lot smoother. I'm finding that it is a very tedious process. Um, it takes a long time. There's a lot more administrative work that needs to be done. Um, just from kind of an overview perspective, but you know, the concept is that you are sending the documents to the signatories. They have their own set of documents. You have your own set of documents and then any, any witnesses have their own set of documents. You have everybody together on a conference call and then you kind of work your way through this process of identifying people, getting copies of their uh, driver's licenses, you know, holding things up to the camera. So it's quite a process. So I recommend having um, a checklist that you can do, uh, that you can follow along. Um, if you need one, I'm happy to share the checklist that we've created at our firm. I'm sure lots of other places have them as well. Um, you know, note, of course, that you need to change all of your remote notaries, that you need to change all of the notarization uh, uh, acknowledgement paragraphs. They need to change to reflect the fact that you're doing it according to this new law. Um, so you can't just use the ones that are already in your documents. Uh, so that takes time and effort, obviously. Um, and then just making sure that you have this remote notarization affidavit to attach to all of your documents. Um, again, if there's, if people need, a, need one as a sample, I'm happy to provide a sample of the one that we have uh, at our firm, but just making sure that you have that. So, you know, I think most people probably already know about that, but it was nice to see that the Massachusetts legislature has kind of taken the reins and, and taken care of that. So um, that's kind of all I have for now. Like I said, there wasn't a lot going on uh, because of the pandemic, but luckily, you know, we, I feel like we have our courts and our legislature have kind of risen to the occasion to provide us with the tools that we need to do 
continue our jobs uh, going forward. So I think there's a few questions. Stephanie, I'm gonna send it back to you for now. And if there's one for me, I can definitely come back on. Great, thanks Heidi. Uh, yeah, we have a few questions here. Um, one is about, this relates to what you were just talking about. Can you speak to when the remote notarization ends and how the state of emergency is defined in the, in the legislation? Yeah, for sure. So um, the remote notarization uh, bill is valid until three business days after the termination of the governor's March 10th, 2020 declaration of the state of emergency. So I went back and read that uh, state of emergency, you know, in preparation for this, and it's, it's pretty vague. Uh, basically, it's valid until they decide that it's not valid anymore. So I think that there's a Obviously, there's a distinction between, you know, the stay at home orders and the state of emergency. Um, just in discussion with people at my firm, I think we've all kind of agreed that the state of emergency itself is likely to extend well beyond um, what, you know, the stay at home orders themselves are going to be. So we kind of just have to keep an eye out on when that state of emergency ends um, and certainly you know we'll try to get an alert out there on the bba blog um, if and when that eventually does uh, terminate so there's no set date right now but it will be this the remote notarization act itself will be three business days after the end of that state of emergency great thanks um another great question and i think all panelists or any panelists can chime in on this what are people doing as far as submitting original wills or negotiated assents when you're so used to hand delivering all of this? Are you just crossing your fingers and hope it's getting to the right place? What's the preferred method? Uh, I'm happy to respond at least for the original wills. Um, I have put my faith into the U.S. Postal Service. Um, I am sending things via U.S. Postal Service certified return receipt requested. Um, I have very, in the past two weeks, I've sent four probates in um, just from my home address uh, and they have gotten in and I've gotten uh, citations on two of them so far. So it's happening. I think our firm is debating a little bit as to whether or not we want to have original documents being sent from, you know, the lawyer's houses or being sent from the office. Um, but, you know, we're just doing things by mail and doing it well. I also know that you can e-file um, probate packages. I personally have not done that, um, but I know other people in my firm have. But yeah, I, I think that mail is the way to do it. So I've been successful with the post office. I'll let other people jump on if they had any other ways to do it. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with Heidi. Uh, I put my faith in, in in the postal service and FedEx with you know some he heavy duty tracking. You know that's what we've been doing. And in terms of inter office mail, I mean, we try to just have a lot of the mailings and original documents sent to one of the offices, and then we'll have you know either an attorney or administrative worker go through and cycle through a lot of the originals and get things scanned in. But I mean, I agree. It, it's kind of unsettling when you when you're sending out originals given you know the state of things and you know mail we've had some trouble with the mail and you know cross our fingers you know we haven't lost any originals but um, it is a concern I'll just jump in also um, to um, 
uh, to add that, yeah, we're doing FedEx with the original documents. Um, even if you're doing the e-filing, which again, I haven't personally done, but some other people in my office have, um, you still need to send in the will, the, the original will separately from the e-filing um, process. Um, so yeah, we've been using FedEx and so far so good. Um, you know, again, the following up on the, um, on the tracking is really important to make sure it got there and then looking at the docket. So yeah, we're, we're doing the same thing. Here's another question about remote notarization. Um, if a document for an out-of-state resident is signed, witnessed, uh, notarized remotely in Massachusetts, do you have a sense or is there any authority out there to speak to how that document will be um, upheld in the home jurisdiction or where it's ultimately probated if they don't have the same requirements as Massachusetts? Um, that's a good question. I don't have specific authority on it. Uh, I, you know, I would just note, and maybe I don't understand the question precisely, you know, the remote notarization in Massachusetts requires that all parties themselves are physically located within the Commonwealth during, during the actual signatory process. Um, I guess I would make the argument that if you kind of meet those requirements and everybody is in Massachusetts and they follow the steps of our statute, um, I know without having the, you know, the code book in front of me, I know that at least Massachusetts allows that if you follow the steps in another state and follow their rules, that it will be allowed here. So I would assume that there are similar statutes in other states. I don't have any specific authority on that, but that would be my kind of gut reaction on that question. But the key is to make sure that at least for Massachusetts, everybody has to be in state. And for somebody like myself who actually lives out of state, you know, I've had to kind of schedule all of my remote notarizations on one day so I can actually drive down to Massachusetts and do it. So that's kind of another one of those annoying pieces of this legislation. Yeah, one thing we should be cautioned about is if we're filing real estate documents in other states, for instance, if we have a you know, client signed in Massachusetts, but there's real estate in Florida or New Hampshire, um, that could be an issue because we don't know if title insurers are going to, you know, allow, you know, the Massachusetts remote notarization statute you know, they're pretty finicky title insurers, you know, very cautious, you know, a lot of underwriting there. And so it's, you know, we've had some pushback. So, you know, with respect to real estate documents, if, if there's a, a title insurer that's working with all parties, you should consult with that person. Um, and we've told clients in certain circumstances, you know, we'd advocate re-signing their estate plan documents, you know, down the road, you know, when things open up a bit more. Um, which, you know, it's a difficult conversation to have because there's a lot of time involved in getting everything signed. It's not a user-friendly statute and, and it's a tough pill to swallow to tell a client that, you know, you may have to do this now mulligan and re-sign everything afterwards, but um, we just don't want any issues down the road where, you know, one jurisdiction, you know, may not recognize a document down the road. And so, you know, if we can reasonably get everything re-signed, uh, you know, that's our plan. Thanks. Um, there's a question here, rumor is Middlesex isn't accepting FedEx's only U.S. mail. Um, I know from personal experience that about three or four weeks ago, I FedExed them something and it went through no problem. I don't know if anyone's had um, a different experience in the last couple weeks. No? 
Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> Go ahead, Patty. Hi, sorry. Um, so we, we did get something back. Um, we've been using FedEx um, to, to send to Middlesex and then and that's been working, but I think it was the last week in May, um, things came back to us because there was some issue with um, the, the, uh, the physical courthouse being closed due to somebody there having the virus and some, some emergency, some, there, there was some sort of special issue that happened in a, in a particular, you know, time period and that caused the different pieces of mail to get bounced back. But since then it, it, it's been working. So, and before that it was working. They're also changing, they're in the middle, I think, of changing their locations. I think they're finally doing the, um, the separation of the court um, to upper and lower Middlesex. There's the, I think there's gonna be the one in Lowell and the one in Woburn. So keep an eye out on that for when that happens. I don't have dates, but just a FYI. If somebody else knows more about that, please, I'm, I'm interested to know more too. That's it. Here's another question on notarizing. What if notarizing in a foreign country? Um, I think this goes to Heidi's point, which at least under the legislation in Massachusetts, you can only notarize something if you are virtually, if you are physically in Massachusetts, as is the person for whom you're notarizing. Um, here's a comment about Norfolk. I filed a voluntary in Norfolk, uh, received certified mail receipt back, but still not docketed. I can speak to um, my experience in Norfolk, which is nothing has moved um, in quite a while. So I don't know if any of the other panelists have had a similar experience, but um, Sarah, you are not alone. Um, and that's, I think, just about it for questions. There was one question I know Brad had answered offline, but uh, it was a really great question. So Brad, if you want to address the, the larger group about it, that'd be great. Sure, sure. It's a, a great question. And so the question was, is whether there was a fraudulent conveyance claim with respect to the Belanger case. And again, so this is the one where the settlor murdered his neighbors. And, and so, and the answer is no. And the reason for that is, is at the time that the trust was created, there was no claim against Donald. You know, he was still alive. He, he hadn't murdered anyone. And, you know, and so if you, if you change the facts and had he you know, let's just say, like, for instance, you know, Donald arrives in the parking lot, sees his neighbors and assaults, you know, assaults his neighbors, you know, at that time, you know, he's still alive, his trust is irrevocable, irrevocable, but the statute would say that you can reach the assets because there'd be a, presumably there'd be a claim against him while he's alive. And so the trust would be in existence and, and you could dip into the trust. But here there was no creditor claim um, or judgment against Donald at the time he created that trust. So typically when you set up a trust, especially in asset protection jurisdictions, you need to submit an affidavit of solvency saying, you know, essentially saying that you have no debts. And so here, when Donald established this irrevocable trust, he had no debts, he had no judgments against his name. And so he set the trust up and then he murdered his neighbors. And so that's the policy concern is if you can set up a trust like this, you know, contemplating that I want to murder someone right after I set up the trust and I funded it with my assets, or maybe I set up the trust and then go on a shopping spree right after, you know, to what extent can the creditors, you know, attach the assets in the trust? And, and so that's the policy 
concern is, you know, it's almost a quasi asset protection trust. You know, it doesn't protect you while you're alive and you're, you're a beneficiary of the trust. But once you're dead, you know, there's an absence. There, there's no direction under Massachusetts law right now and whether creditors can, you know, dip into this irrevocable trust um, and satisfy, satisfy any judgments. And so, you know, public policy would suggest that, you know, creditors probably should be able to do it similar to an irrevocable trust. Um, but there's probably going to be some heavy pushback from trustees trying to administer trusts and, and want finality with judgments. I mean, keep in mind, I mean, this judgment against Donald, it, it didn't, it wasn't perfected until, you know, I think it was at least four years after his date of death. So, you know, trustees don't want to sit around administering a trust for four years if it calls for an outright distribution to the remainder beneficiaries. So uh, somehow the SJC is going to have to weigh all this and come up with a balance. And, and unfortunately, it's bad facts. And, and so it may make bad law. Uh, and then the legislator will have to take a look at the MUTC and, and maybe add another paragraph to Section 505, um, clarifying what happens um, with respect to an irrevocable trust when the settler dies um, and where the settler was a beneficiary. Um, but it's a good question, you know, but again, you know, no fraudulent conveyance claim because there was no actual action against Donald at the time he funded this trust. Great. Thank you. Uh, well, I think that's it for questions. I just want to say thank you again to all of our participants. This was, um, or all of our panelists. This was really great. Um, I learned a lot. I hope everyone who attended did too. Um, to the extent you have more questions, I'm sure that um, any of the panelists would be happy to hear from you. And thanks again for attending. Hope everyone has a good day. Bye.